right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast, where I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Brendan Veeman. Brendan, how are you doing today over on the East Coast? You're hanging in there? No storms ripping through your neighborhood today? Despite it being hurricane season over here, we are hanging in just fine. We are starting to get the beginning of fall. The weather is starting to cool down and I am feeling amazing. I think I'm going to go play some pickleball after this, Bryce. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, America's fastest growing sport. Also, I heard uh, uh, very, very much responsible for quite a lot of uh, medical bills these days. People are getting hurt <laughs> left and right on the pickleball courts. People, uh, the actuaries have not been pricing this in. But anyhow, we are going to have a very interesting discussion today with the co-founders of PharmaDAO. We've got Israel Mursky and Gennaro Durso. And I apologize, I'm not Italian and I know I didn't get that right. He'll say it beautifully in just a second. Uh, but these are the co-founders of PharmaDAO. Uh, Gennaro is also the CEO of Genetics Network. And we're going to be learning about um, f- uh, really, you know, the pharma, the big pharma industry and how we're going to disrupt it and how we're going to bring decentralization and transparency and sovereignty and all those good, beautiful things that blockchain can bring to it. Um, so let's introduce our guests here. Um, Gennaro, we'll say hello to you first. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Really nice to be here and to give you some insights, I hope, into yes. how uh, decentralization can make a difference in this very important space. And can you can you say the last name uh, without butchering it like I just did, please? So my name is Gennaro Dorso. Beautiful. I love it. It just something about the Italian love language, man. It just it gets me every time. Um, a, and Israel Mursky, it's a beautiful name as well. How are you doing today? Thank you very much. Very well, thank you. Good to be here. Absolutely. So um, we're gonna you know bust into the, the big pharma industry and how we're gonna disrupt it. But before we do that, I want to get you guys acquainted um, with our audience, and and we want to know a little bit about how you guys came into the market um, from the pharma industry now into uh, into crypto and blockchain. So, um, Gennaro, let's go with you first. Um, tell us a little bit about you and uh, how you found yourself here. Well, I guess the, the story really begins um, that I'm a scientist. I was trained. Uh, in the classical sense, uh, basic research, you know, doing all the things that we do to get to a point where we could run our own laboratory. I was running a lab in the University of Miami as a professor. Um, I was really under a rock for the most part. I was, you know, working really hard in science and decided to um, do something very important during the pandemic was find treatments to save lives. And our technology was used in that case. But then um, I realized that it was very difficult to uh, bring these things forward just due to the system, the way it works in the, in the large uh, pharmaceutical industry. And uh, that's not to say it's necessarily awful. It's just that it's the way it is. And so mm-hmm. along those uh, that path, I, I realized that there might be an alternative way when I learned more about blockchain and the technology. And, and I thought of it at that time as a really powerful approach to form a distributed ledger that people could join in and do something more direct towards the things we needed at the time. So um, one thing led to another. I spent about a year and a half uh, really pursuing uh, the dream of, of saying, can we decentralize, can we democratize uh, drug development, uh, drug production? And um, the answer to that question is, I think we can. And I think we can do a very effective job at doing that. And uh, and so PharmaDAO was born, at least conceptually. And then that's led to uh, basically creating something called Pharma Collective, which is a foundation 501c3, but also has the infrastructure being run by PharmaDAO and uh, and this decentralized tech to develop or produce drugs in the public interest is our main main uh, job at this point. 
And uh, I should say that, you know, Israel and I are co-founders, but we also uh, have several other people that have joined the community and are, are actively pursuing uh, this uh, mission. Incredible. And Israel, uh, what were you doing before you founded uh, PharmaDAO? Sure. So I'm originally a computer scientist. Uh, I spent many years in the advertising universe. Um, I used to run the global media business for Intel at the agency and spent the better part of a billion dollars for Intel. And then I ran global technology for OMD, which is one of the massive global media agencies. Um, and uh, so I was, I've been a technologist and followed uh, crypto for a very long time. I like to say that I've missed five fortunes in this space. I originally recommended uh, Bitcoin uh, as a disruptive technology uh, to the Omnicom global CEO when it was seven dollars. Um, oh, wow! And, and I didn't, I didn't understand the price action. I just didn't. Um, I just thought it was going to be a disruptive, a disruptive technology. Um, uh, but yeah, so I've I've been involved in this space for uh, for quite a long time um, in one way or another. Um, I first got exposure to some of the PharmaDAO related problems um, uh, when I was running strategy for a pharma company in the psychedelic space a couple of years ago, a company called Wusana. We were looking to get a combination of psilocybin and CBD approved for traumatic brain injury, tremendously promising concept, by the way, and our early research looked great. But I started getting really well acquainted with how complicated this stuff was and how hard it was to get drugs that are really promising funded. Um, and how much cooperation you need from big pharmas in the current system to get that done and get them into people's hands. And I spent a lot of time thinking of, I, in general, I spent a lot of time thinking about systems and how you create systems level positive change. And a lot of the time it comes down to messing with the incentives for the players involved through applying new technologies. Mm -hmm. um, so I was following the early DAOs and I realized there was an opportunity to create a different kind of funding mechanism for pharmaceuticals that could change the incentive structure in such a way that you could save a lot of lives and, and maybe shift the dynamics in pharma. And I was calling it something else um, and worked on it for a while, but then I put it aside because I didn't have the right collaborator. Um, I needed someone who had deep pharma and research credentials expertise and was also excited about the promise here. And then eventually I met Gennaro um, at an event and uh, he started to tell me what I had been thinking of as my concept. And I thought, this is kismet. And so we teamed mm -hmm. up um, and uh, got off to the races. Yeah. So I, I guess the the big question that, that kind of comes to mind, just if we zoom out at a high level, it sounds like... Um, you guys are really looking to uh, decentralize how um, drugs are developed and how drugs are, are distributed. Um, where does blockchain kind of come in, and, and how do we how do we think about you know this technology really disrupting a really established industry? And maybe you guys could both take a crack at it from from different angles. Sure, you know I think in order to answer that question, um, it's important first to understand why the system is currently so broken and the ways in which it's broken, right? So that you can sort of see how the, the uh, decentralized technologies can be a really effective counter to that. Um, so the macro story is that uh, the incentives in pharma are really screwed up and the cost structures that have developed around those incentives. So how much large pharmas need to make to pay attention to a new drug um, are so massive that they distort the market of what gets produced. So in order to be worthwhile uh, for pharma and to drive bottom lines and what their investors demand from them, most drugs need to pay back $2 billion per year to a pharma giant that sponsors them. So, and since those folks are the source of money in this ecosystem, absolutely every other company 
um, that works in pharma is basically catering to them and to those, um, that effort to create those kinds of blockbusters. And to make that kind of money, um, a lot of those new drugs end up being things like oncology drugs that extend life by like weeks or months because people are going to pay for anything at the end of their lives or drugs that people have to be on for the rest of their lives. And so they're sustained sources of income. And uh, new drugs that could be more effective and so could threaten an existing profitable drug are not infrequently purchased by those really large pharmas and killed to avoid competing with like a cash cow drug that they already have. Um, meanwhile, like the Harvest business, Harvard Business School grads got in there a couple of decades ago and started experimenting with like how much they could charge for drugs um, as opposed to producing them for a percentage over what they cost to research and make, which mm. is how it worked before. Um, and when you're talking about things people need to function or survive, like there's a lot of price elasticity there as like all of our societies and we have noticed. Um, so obviously that's not how public health is best served. There's a lot of examples of this, but, but probably the largest opportunity or one of the largest opportunities from our perspective is in off patent drugs. So generics, hmm. there's over 10,000 generic drugs that are generally recognized as safe. They've already been tested. Um, and and drugs often have multiple uses for multiple diseases. But a, if a drug is off patent, there's virtually no way of developing them for other conditions because the potential payoff doesn't rise to that multi-billion dollar per year mark that the big pharmas need in order to justify to their investors working on stuff. So that's kind of the macro, right? Um, the ecosystem isn't responsible to the people it's meant to help, which looks like a good case for a DAO. Right. Mm. So, um, you know, we're looking at this going um, that if the core of the issue is that the incentives are misaligned and perverse, how do we create better incentives, like a, a better engine for developing drugs? Well, it's got to be more responsible to the public and to public health outcomes. And for that to happen, it's got to be OK with making sub billion dollar profits on drugs and in reinvesting those profits in ways that are actually in the public interest. And in theory, this should really happen through democratically elected governments tweaking the incentives. But because of the vast amounts of money being made in pharma, their lobbying engines have made it virtually impossible to do the reforms that are needed to do that at the governmental level, right? Yeah. So we need another path. Instead of using the existing public treasury, we need to make one of our own and we need to make it self-sustaining. So how do we do that? We need a mechanism that's responsible to investing on behalf of its members which sounds like a DAO, right? And we need to use, we need a path to investing in the right things. Now, there's several models to use a DAO to help public health, but a huge opportunity exists in that generic repurposing, like we said, right? You take an existing generic drug, it's already recognized as safe. It's very likely to be efficacious for new conditions, either because it's already been prescribed off-label, like ketamine for depression, or because you've got a technology that's suggesting it's going to work, like what Genaro has at Genetic Networks. Um, and uh, you, you take that and you run a phase three trial on it to relabel it for a new indication. You go for what's called a, a temporary patent, like a 505B2, I think is the designation from the FDA, which gets you like three to seven years worth of temporary patent protection to make that generic drug for like that new indication, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's going to get you like tens to maybe hundreds of millions of dollars worth of payback. It's not going to rise to that $2 billion level, but it's enough to, when put back into the DAO, to create a self-sustaining engine that works on drug development in the public interest, that works to identify new ways to really advance public health um, and that is transparent and accountable uh, to the public.
You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I know I, I just that's a kind of a, a, a long no, hey. explanation, yeah. but uh, you sort of need all the pieces to to see the vision. Yep. No, awesome. And and um, Jannar, do you see things the same exact way, or is there anything that you'd like to expound upon that uh, Israel just mentioned? Yeah, no, I think what Israel has said is something you know we've been discussing for some time now, and, and I think it's uh, I'm totally in agreement with everything he just mentioned. I'll add just something else to the question you asked, which is why blockchain? You know, why blockchain mm-hmm. is is useful for this? And I guess that was sort of um, not knowing a lot about blockchain when I started, uh, realizing. The power of it was truly the, the distributed nature of, of the technology. So that's really what attracted me to this concept because I felt like it was an egoless uh, system that you could literally have something that was owned by a community. So I like to think of it, and, and you know, I've had some pushback on this, but I think it's pretty accurate to say building a distributed autonomous organization, which I think is really important that it's distributed and autonomous, which are two things that are generally are lacking for most DAOs that I've seen, um, is really, um, at, the, at the end, that is what you really want to create. And there's no centralized figure in there. There's no employees. There's nothing happening other than there's a treasury there that the community operates off of, much like the treasury of the United States. But remember, there's 2 million employees that are involved with the transfer of that do- those dollars to whatever projects they deem necessary at the time, many of which are usually kind of fruitless, right? And don't really generate what we want. So I, I just thought of it in simple terms to build almost like your own nation of a distributed ledger, which everyone would have a vote, an equal vote, and they could donate whatever they want to that treasury. And that treasury can then be used for the things we actually need when it comes to health and drugs in particular. And so that kind of re- was reinforced by understanding what Bitcoin was. And I think of Bitcoin as really the first DAO. Uh, a distributed ledger that had 650 billion in it right now, and it was a trillion. And that goes to show you the power of how you can seriously crowdfund 
into a into a wallet, basically into a treasury. And if you designated some of that money for purposes like finding drugs that we need during a pandemic or in a short supply drug that no one's making because there's not enough money in it, uh, the community can actually say, we need this. Let's get this made, get it distributed so people get saved. And that's the end of it. And because you distribute it among hopefully millions of people, there's no risk at all to any individual losing their shirt on this deal. Like you just put in a small donation every month and you've got yourself a treasury that you can all act on. And so that was, you know, at a high level, that's what really drove me down this path to say, this is just literally a, a different accountable system, transparent, secure, and that people could actually have the control over decisions regarding their own medicine. And, um, and this really has been the main point that I've been stressing in my talks with people. Um, Israel does a much more elaborate job of describing what's on the ground right now in terms of the system that's in place. And I wouldn't, we, we do have a broken system, but I think the most important thing to understand is this system is broken for us. It's not broken for the businesses that operate within the current regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, everything they do is legal, above board, most of the time. I wouldn't say it's never that, but generally speaking, it's all legal and things are governed the way they're governed and they're lobbied, et cetera. But we need to be an alternative. We have to generate an alternative way of generating drugs for people that need them. Um, and I think this is the way, personally. I think decentralization technologies are um, quite possibly the only way to disrupt this uh, industry that's been sort of in place over 100 years and, and really hard to move or change. Yeah, and Gennaro, one of the things that you that you mentioned is you said, hey, when I got into this space, I wasn't super familiar with blockchain tech. And it makes sense. And it got me thinking, how many other people are out there like you that can make the same kind of impact, right? They are wanting to do something, they're looking to do to do something, and they simply just don't know about blockchain. Because I think when most people think about blockchain, you know, the first thing that comes to their mind isn't pharma. But it just goes to show that there is a practical use case uh, of blockchain tech in so many different areas that people just haven't even thought to to apply yet. And this is just another one of those examples of saying, hey, we haven't seen blockchain really applied much when it comes to to the pharma field. But, you know, here we are and we're looking at these new applications and your yourselves as essentially a new project. And so maybe there is a listener out there. Um, and I just want this to kind of act as your, maybe your motivation to say, hey, blockchain can be used for so much more than we've seen it so far. And in the coming years, we're going to see a lot more projects like this of people's minds just being blown and saying, hey, I never thought that we could have used it this way. And yet here we are. Yeah. And I think, yeah, what you said about, you know, how the blockchain realigns incentives and, you know, kind of as you guys were alluding to, like, if you just follow the money you'll find out where all the corruption <laughs> is. And the beautiful thing about blockchains is that they're completely transparent. And you can literally follow the money publicly, openly, whereas a lot of the funding that happens in, um, I'm not going to name any names, but you know, all sorts of different um, governmental agencies and dark pools of capital, you know, the public is not made aware of who's funding what kind of gain-of-function research or who's, fu- who's funding where. And, and, and so bringing all this sort of funding into the public purview, I think, is of national interest in a, in a very real way. 
along with some of the ad- other added benefits, which maybe outside of the transparency and stuff we could talk about. But um, is it lower costs? Is it you know passing through different kinds of drugs that would never be funded before? Like, there's what what are those other added benefits that you guys really foresee in that real impact? You know, pharma Dow making. I think I think lower costs on the way to making drugs available that wouldn't otherwise be available is a critical part of this, right? Like we we believe that part of the reason that the cost structures of the existing um, drug marketplace are what they are is because of the incentives of the agency of the um, entities that are currently responsible for getting drugs over that last mile and their appetite and tolerance for certain types of cost. Um, and there, there are better ways to do some of this work that are emerging, including doing some stuff overseas and various types of um, uh, advanced record keeping, et cetera, that you can do. But I think, um, you know, the core of it, it is like this, why we use that generics repurposing example, although it's hardly the only model that we see as an opportunity here, um, is because there really isn't a meaningful way to see those generics repurposed um, outside of creating a structure like what we're describing here, right? Some sort of publicly responsible entity um, whose job it is to get things over the line, get things researched and then distributed to people that otherwise simply wouldn't be because um, of the nature of the entities and the incentives that currently exist. Yeah. And I get I can't emphasize enough um, the distributed aspect of this. This is so important because we've never had a technology that easily allows um, a distribution among, you know, quite frankly, a billion people. And therefore, you can lower the risk because if you think about the way drugs are normally discovered, it's a super high risk business, of course, right? Um, in meetings I go to, I would say when you meet all these biotech companies that are trying to make new drugs, and that could be a very uh, promising thing for the future, um, about 90% or more of those companies will fail. And as a result of that, a lot of money is sort of lost in that in that cycle. And so, and there's a lot of risk, you know, the, the venture capitalists, whoever put that money in, are quite frankly, could lose, you know, 100, 200 million dollars in, in one company. And they only succeed by getting at least one win because they can literally sell that for enough money to make up for all the loss. But that's what I would consider a highly inefficient system that doesn't work to our best end of having affordable medications for everybody in the world. When we're sitting on, like Israel said, 10,000 drugs that are safe and affordable, quite frankly, and we just don't know their applications yet, if we could figure that out, if we could bring those to fruition through small clinical trials that are tenfold less expensive than a standard trial for a new drug, that's a big change in, in the industry potentially. But who's going to fund that? No one's going to fund that from a classic point of view because there's just not enough money to bring back the return they expect. So the only way you can do that is distributing it among the people that need the medications and, and do it in a way where there's zero risk for any individual. Because mm-hmm. who can't afford, you know, $5 a month donation to this cause? Now, certainly there are populations that can't afford $5 a month. 
But I would argue that even if you took 10% of the population and gave $5 a month, you would still have in excess of a billion dollar treasury that could be used for producing drugs, that nobody would be at risk. And I think that's what we, we need people to, to, quite frankly, understand that. And edu- we need to educate that, that concept because it's very foreign to most people. You, you raised a good point, uh, I think it was Bryce, that said, you know, you're a scientist, you're somebody who studied for decades research. I was involved in a team that won a Nobel Prize in 2001. So yes, I have a very good background in science. Who else is out there like Gennaro, you know, doing similar things in the blockchain space? Honestly, I haven't really met anyone. And that's part of the problem because scientists are a very strange group. I'm probably the most gregarious one I've ever met myself. But um, but mo- many of them are introverts. They sit in their labs, they study things, and they don't really think blockchain is real. Or maybe they're starting to see it, but they're not spending their time thinking about it. Um, they're doing their experiments. So I think we need to reach those people. I think those are the people that eventually, if they get it, will benefit the most, actually, because they could help us repurpose these medications potentially using their skills. And that could also feed into the system so we can actually get drugs made much more uh, you know, quickly and more affordably for everybody in the world. This is global, right? This isn't US. This is a uh, blockchain. So anybody can be part of this uh, movement. And so it's going to take some time. Things like this help. But I would love to see more people like myself involved in blockchain, other scientists that are skilled in this area. But I have not yet really seen much of that. You mentioned the D-side movement. That's true. Right. There's a D-side movement. I think it's a little naive at times because of the fact many of the people I've met have really not been in the, the trenches like I have in terms of research. And so research is extremely expensive and doesn't really yield uh, value immediately. Um, what we're talking about, um, Israel and I, we're talking about a system in place that's owned by a complete community that generates mm-hmm. products that actually brings things to the surface so you can get them. And these are just simple things like baby Tylenol when it runs out and your kid is sick with 104 fever. Who's making that for us? Nobody. It was a short supply. And if you were a parent with that problem, you'd be pretty annoyed. So PharmaDAO exists for those reasons as well. How do you bring these things to market? And that doesn't mean excluding for-profit companies. It means embracing for-profit companies that are not big pharma that actually have a way to produce things that we need small scale, perhaps. And I think it, that it kind of reminds me of, um, of uh, what Mark Cuban is doing with cost plus drugs. Absolutely. Is there any overlap there? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, we see we see that as a potential uh, great point of collaboration because Mark's stated goal is very similar to ours in that we both want to lower pharmaceutical costs for the end user. A lot of what he's offering there are generic medications um, at really, really effective prices where he's minimizing his markup. Um, you know, we have uh, some feelings about um, 
onshore versus offshore production in terms of quality control, et cetera, um, and long-term uh, national security issues that we ran into in the recent pandemic when you don't produce enough of your drugs onshore. Um, but uh, philosophically, I'd say like we're, we're very, very aligned. Yeah, I, I think, Mark, um, if you're listening, Mark, you know, we should have a chat. But um, bottom line is, it, you know, we we have uh, I've reached out to the company. I, I've talked to the CEO. Um, I think alignment will happen eventually because what Mark is doing is he's building a small facility in Texas right now. And his real focus, I believe, is in retail. He wants to, to do retail of these drugs, uh, much like Amazon and others. But I like the way he's moving this and he's going to need suppliers. He's going to need what I'm talking about here is, is building a, almost like a guild of manufacturer suppliers. Um, one of the things people don't recognize sometimes is that if you run a manufacturing facility properly, there's money to be made. It's not billions as Israel pointed out, but it's millions. And that's pretty good if you cover all your expenses and make millions. I mean, nobody would argue with that as a bad business. And a lot of those companies are sort of family operated or, or have a legacy. And uh, unfortunately, um, there's systems in place in our country that have destroyed those companies, uh, tend to take them out, you know, uh, and, and I think they're a risk uh, to the larger industry and what they really want. So um, a lot of them get sold off. In the pandemic, we lost the largest uh, generic manufacturer in our country, which was uh, Mylon, which was a million square feet. And that was uh, bought and sold and uh, no, actually bought and killed actually. And so that was a, a problem. So so what we're talking about here is sort of, you know, good for the middle of the road people, the people that can actually make things happen. And for-profit companies do that. And they should be working with treasuries to make things happen. Just like the government treasury funds for-profit companies to do things, but no accountability, like the trillions of dollars spent on, you know, planes we don't need for military actions we won't do mm. nobody's accountable for that but that's money out of our own personal treasury and so israel and i are trying to wake up the nation to say hey let's build our own nation have our own treasury and use it for specific purposes that are necessary to keep people alive and cut out all the middlemen because the middlemen are not necessary with with basically decentralized tech you don't the middlemen are middle not your friends. Yeah, you were you were talking earlier about like the the folks who might be listening to this podcast and think themselves, you know, for the first time, oh, this might be relevant to my space. And yeah. I think I think you know, if you look for places where um, middlemen are, are extracting large amounts of money from a transaction between a, a buyer and a seller, um, that's a really good place to think about whether or not um, crypto, Web three, or or DAO opportunities might be a business opportunity for you to start. And and not necessarily, um, I, I want to be clear about this, like Gennaro and I are not expecting or intending to get rich off PharmaDAO. The point here is like it, we consider ourselves, we are the first founders of this project, but um, we want lots of founders and we ultimately wanted this thing to exist. Um, independent of us or anything that we individually do, um, because it really should be driven by the public interest and not our individual personal interest. Yeah. And you, you know, this reminds me of, of even going back to the DeFi space, because what DeFi was able to do was it gave 
everyone across the world, even if they didn't have access to a traditional first world financial system like we might have in the States or other countries, anyone could go out there and get access to finance in some form. And DeFi empowered people globally who didn't have those kind of luxuries. And in the yeah. same way, I feel like you all are doing the exact same thing for the, the pharmacy space. And so people who might not be able to have the same kind of mm -hmm. pharmaceutical system or health benefits uh, that people have in the States or other countries are able to get access or be a part of this. And that's where I really find it beneficial. So I guess my question for for all of you is when you're looking at your target demographic here, is this something that anyone from someone in Africa to someone in the United States could use? Are you targeting maybe like one demographic or area over the other? Like what's so, your vision? So there's two answers to that question. You know, like obviously the U.S. is the sort of center of the bullseye, but the reality is that drug prices in the U.S. affect drug prices everywhere else. Mm. So if we we set the tone here, um, and if you read that book, Sick Money, that we were talking about in the, the preview, highly recommend it. If you are interested in the space at all, it's a, an incredible primer on how we got here and, and uh, how, how and why the space is so messed up. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, we, I think the, the, the very center of the bullseye is the U.S. The wider center is, is the Western world. Um, but ultimately, what we do here is going to affect the problem um, globally. And so, because just as a simple example, um, when we get a, a, a new indication approved um, for a generic, um, the fact that the U.S. has done that flows into basically every other country's approach to that drug and how it's covered and how it's used. Um, so, you know, the, the, the types of actions we take here really will impact the rest of the world. Yeah. And I think, um, Bryce, your, your point about... Um, sort of disrupting in the sense of the financial systems and allowing it to be more accessible to everybody around the world was really what drew me to the blockchain tech in the first place. And it was clearly 2008, of course, that drove that. Mm -hmm. And and so the idea of be building a social network in a sense to impact financial transactions, which is what really Bitcoin in a sense was. And think about how many people ultimately bought into it. It took time, right? $7 a coin, we didn't care. Of course, now we do. But it, it did take time and people did recognize, I think, the power of the technology to, to make these uh, huge impacts. And I guess if we were saying the same thing about PharmaDAO, we'd be saying, you know, it's, it's been created as a social network to impact pharmaceutical transactions. So it's literally the same that. concept, but brought to a much, in my mind, a much more important aspect of life. It's, it's survival, you know, life and death and essentials that we need in order to maintain our health. Um, money is great, and we all need it uh, to survive, but there's nothing more important in my mind than um, you know four essentials of life, right, which include medicine. And so there's water, shelter, and food. Of course, those three things are also essential for life and important. And I truly believe that ultimately, if people catch on to this idea of this collective protocol, that we, we call it the collective protocol, which is, you build a treasury and you intersect that treasury um, with a for-profit company or many for-profit companies to get the purpose of that treasury completed. And that treasury is distributed and it's community owned. And in my, in our case, it's a 501c3. It could take other forms. But this way, it's legitimate. It's above board. It's a, it's a real company. And that company can transact with for-profit companies legally. They can hold them accountable for what they promise to do. And this is proven this has worked before and 
One example is the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation that was got $4 billion return from a $200 million investment on a 10% royalty. And that was all done through a non-for-profit working with a single for-profit company. That was not the perfect system because ultimately that money sat in a bank account for five or 10 board members to do whatever they want with. But that's not the point of PharmaDAO. The point would be that $5 billion would be part of a treasury owned by every human in the planet. That would be my dream. Yeah. Of course, we'll never it's almost there, like but... um, like a mutual, like an insurance mutual, if you will. Um, exactly. Yes. We're in like a, like a risk management. Like a, risk management for life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for, for, for pharmaceutical more broadly, yeah. No, and, so like, oh, I was just going to say, um, I guess, you know, as as we kind of you know think about how you guys are going to bring this into reality and, you know, what's the go-to-market? Is this going after individuals to get them on board first and then going to drug distributors or is it going to the suppliers? Like, how do you guys think about the, the sequence of events to getting this um, into full production mode? So there's a few stages and we're running multiple strategies at the same time, right? So we're, we're pursuing high net worth individuals um, at the same time as we're doing a broad marketing campaign to smaller individuals. Um, uh, there's a, 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 a minting NFT strategy just to get people excited and involved and help build up that initial treasury, which we can talk about more. Um, but the the sort of initial startup capital focus is um, is across those two groups. Then once we've got that nut of initial capital, there's about five projects that we have on the docket, um, which we'll uh, go public with soon that uh, look like really excellent early opportunities for the DAO to make an impact. Um, and we'll basically start uh, driving the, the initial DAO members into... Um, making some choices about which of those we go after first. Um, by the way, the way this works is um, anybody can bring a proposal to the DAO, but there's a, a vetting council of pharmaceutical experts that basically help identify and sort the wheat from the chaff so that mm -hmm. like not just anybody can bring a proposal to the treasury and get it uh, or not just anybody can bring a proposal to the treasury and get it approved without some real vetting from real pharmaceutical uh, experts, but all those people are operating um, in the public interest and none of their incentives are aligned with anything but um, ensuring that we get uh, drugs that are um, gonna make an impact on public health into uh, the marketplace. Um, so those are sort of the initial uh, stages that we've got mapped out. Um, and I'll let Gennaro fill in anything that I've uh, failed. Yeah, I would just uh, add one thing to what Israel just said. Uh, it's true that anybody can propose something uh, to the DAO, um, but, but there are going to be some conditions that need to be met in order for that to be successful. First of all, I think it will be more like the operations of the government where um, a board will be in place, unpaid, of course, and that board will be literally uh, selected initially by the original board, but eventually could be replacements could be voted on by the community. So there, there could be ways that the community could, you know, veto, let's say somebody on the board if they felt it was not appropriate for whatever reason. And, but it would really be scholars or people that understand what good business is or good science or whatever the need would be. The, the key thing here is I think it'll be much like an RFA, you know, request for application. So, 
we would identify a need and it could be very simple like shortage of insulin or or shortage of baby Tylenol. I used that example before during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And once that need was identified, maybe involving a vote from the community, maybe not. But you could put the RFA out and within a very short time, any for-profit enterprise that could make that product as one example and could generate that product for the for the Dow in a sense, but they have to distribute that through a, the normal for-profit channels could make that proposal. If that proposal passes and clicks the right boxes that this is a legitimate company, they've been in business for whatever number of years, they look like they can do the job we're requesting, then it's put up for a vote. And, and that means they're already validated. And so the vote would be yes, no. Community wants paper town all, they say yes, we find five companies that can make it, great. They all get a piece of the action, they all make a profit on that, and then they distribute it for an additional profit. If somebody does an amazing job of building their business, which is what they should be doing if they're a for-profit company, and start selling way more than we actually ordered initially, they give back a royalty to the Dow. So that's how we can sustain it financially. So the idea here is very simple. You prime or, or you catalyze the production of something we need in the community. Once the company does that successfully, they get paid, they make a small margin, much like Mark Cuban's idea. And then they have the freedom to go distribute that drug. And they, actually, they sign an agreement saying they will. When they distribute, they can give it away for free or they can get another margin on it. That's up to them to, to, to do as a good company. And then once you do, do, have done that, you're going to give back to the Dow for, for doing that pilot. And that could be a percentage of your revenue, your net profits, whatever that might be. But that's all contracted. So it's a straight up milestone-based contract between a non-for-profit and a for-profit and basically fueled by the crowdfunding treasury called PharmaDAO. You know, and, and that, I think, is a system that um, we're trying to kind of spearhead here. And the thought is that could be used for almost anything that people need uh, if you find the right for-profit companies that can do it. And so guess what? Big Pharma is not going to be in that because they don't make those type of products. They simply don't. They only make new drugs and they only make them overseas, basically. Mm. Um, and they're, they're the people that sell them and they make a lot of money on that. But that's not... PharmaDAO is not going to be of interest to them. It's, it's, it's just not going to work for them. It's going to work for smaller producers, which is good. Good for big so, so for the people who are listening in and they want to get involved, where can, I, I guess, where can they get involved? So go to pharmacollective.io, sign up for the, uh, for the mailing list, and you will be an early adopter, uh, an early member of the Genesis group of PharmaDAO Pharma Collective. Um, and as this develops, we're going to maintain that status for you uh, through the years. Um, we will not forget the people who are there for us at the beginning. Love it. Yeah. And the other thing to add, I, I want to make it very clear that um, it's true that to get this thing really ramped up, nobody's, you know, everyone knows that's going to take marketing and, and getting the word out. And, um, and of course, we, we have uh, individually, we all have limited budgets for that. So there may be individuals that come in, see the light here and, and help us drive that forward so we can really get the numbers up that we need. We want a community that's large and we're not focused on individuals with high wealth per se. And the most important thing is anybody who comes in and helps us with that, you still get one vote. You don't get 20 votes. You, we don't have this concept of 
hey, I'm going to donate to this non-for-profit and I'm going to be in control of the board. No, you're going to come in, you're going to be treated equal to anyone else, even the person that has no money but wants to have drugs for their mother. Mm-hmm. They get one vote just like everybody else. And that's true for the government of the United States, theoretically. One vote is one vote per person. Sometimes we can sway that a little bit with a little bit of greasing. We know that. But the reality is it was designed to be equal and democratized across all members. And I think that's what the principle is for PharmaDAO and Pharma Collective to make a, a treasury that's controlled by the people. I love it. And it's for a great purpose as well. So I hope all of our listeners can go over to Pharma Collective. Io, sign up for the mailing list, check it out, and stay apprised of all the developments. So uh, Israel and uh, Gennaro, we really appreciated you guys coming on and spending uh, the time with us. Um, thank you very much. And we wish you guys and all of the uh, the founding members of the PharmaDAO um, all the best. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you very much, guys, for having this conversation. It's uh, much needed. And, uh, Absolutely. It's very important. And uh we hope everybody at home uh, listening at, you know, learned something and can get involved. So uh, stay tuned. Come back next week, guys. We'll have more uh, fantastic guests as we do every week on the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.